Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's been two years since Russia's full-scale invasion in, of Ukraine, but for many Ukrainians, the war really started 10 years ago when Russia annexed Crimea. Since the 2022 invasion, some Ukrainians have made the difficult decision to leave the region. Others have stayed behind, with some fighting Russian troops at the border and others with no choice but to stay. Today, we reflect on this conflict and hear how refugees are adjusting to life here in the United States. But first up, we're hearing from Adam Keene. He's the AmeriCare's Director of Complex Emergencies, and AmeriCare's is based here in Stamford, Connecticut. Adam, welcome to where we live today. Thank you, Catherine. Happy to be with you. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Adam, you know, over the last couple of months, there's been a lot going on in the media cycle, especially focused on the Israel-Hamas war. So really want to start with asking, you know, if you can give us an update on what's happening in Ukraine. You know, we've seen a lot of displacement and many Ukrainian citizens have chosen to leave the region when they can. Can you talk about current updates and what are some of the ramifications of that displacement? Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, millions of Ukrainians have left the country in the days and months following the full-scale invasion two years ago. Um, and many of them have remained outside of the country, but also uh, many have returned. Uh, when you go to border areas now in Poland, where we have a team based, uh, you see people entering Ukraine and leaving Ukraine in almost equal numbers. Um, but overall, obviously, there's been a, a net uh, departure of Ukrainians from the country during this time. Um, and the needs inside of Ukraine remain uh, quite intense. And we we know there's also a real concern about how long people can hold out, you know, both emotionally and practically, physically. So want to get into that kind of support in a little bit. But I want to ask first, you know, do citizens in Ukraine still have access to essentials like electricity and water and heat? Well, it really varies, I, I would say, um, around the country. There's um, closer to the front line in the east and the south of the country. Obviously, the situation is more dire. Um but no part of the country is really spared from the impacts of the war. Attacks have struck uh, just about every corner of the country over the couple of, last couple of years. And so um, while there's more intense fighting in the east and south, uh, in any part of Ukraine, there's a risk of, of missile attacks or other kinds of aggression. And so uh, just living with that kind of uncertainty uh, and that kind of risk of attack over months builds on uh, people's psychological uh, well-being. And so that's one of the areas that AmeriCares has uh, tried to focus on. 
And can you talk about what are what does the support of AmeriCares look like in Ukraine now? You know, as I mentioned, there's there's a lot of need for emotional support. And one of the many things that I think AmeriCares is trying to do is to address growing medical needs as well. So can you talk about having to address that while having while sort of having this shrinking health uh, workforce in this, in those regions? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, you know, the needs over the last couple of years haven't really diminished, but they've changed. Uh, there's a big focus now for AmeriCares on some of the uh, gaps in the healthcare system, uh, especially with regard to mental health, as we've talked about a little bit, but also in terms of the types of specialty medicines that we've been able to help bring into the country. Uh, since the outset of the war, AmeriCares has sent in more than 500 tons of medicines and supplies, um, which equals about 5 million course treatments, which is one of the ways we measure the extent of, of, of the medicines that we provide. And we've been focusing uh, on a smaller number of medicines uh, recently. Um, we've developed relationships with a <clears throat> pediatric cancer hospital in Lviv in Western Ukraine. Uh, so those types of pediatric oncological medicines um, have been part of what we've been shipping in. Um, there's also uh, a concern about antibiotic resistance and resistant infections that are spreading. And so there are particular types of antibiotics that are less uh, easily available. And we've been trying to get some of those into the country as well. Um, but on the mental health side, you know, not only are obviously the Ukrainian people uh, and those exposed directly to the conflict um, stressed and um, made anxious by, by the circumstances, but the humanitarian workers uh, and healthcare providers who are uh, dealing with the impact of the war on civilians are themselves traumatized. It's called vicarious trauma that uh, that they experience from treating the, these uh, patients. And so uh, our team has developed, um, along with other organizations in the United Nations and others, uh, psychological first aid, which is a way to just get people stabilized uh, from a psychological perspective so that they can get on with their lives. Uh, and then also providing support to organizations that provide longer term psychological uh, support um, over the telephone primarily, uh, but also in person uh, in Western Ukraine where, where that's possible. So with that psychological first aid, and, and that's part of the operations that, that you have with AmeriCares to, to give more mental health support, is that for both the civilians on the ground as well as for the aid workers too? Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, as, as an American organization, we have uh, access to, to resources that uh, many organiza organizations inside Ukraine don't have, uh, but our, we see our role really as building up the capacity of these, many of them quite small Ukrainian organizations that have really grown up over the last couple of years, but who have obviously the cultural, linguistic, and in many ways the, the, the technical expertise to get things done, but are lacking the resources uh, to, to do what needs to be done uh, at the scale that's required given the, the, the size of the problem. Um, and so, yes, we we need we work uh, with the staff of these um, Ukrainian organizations, uh, helping them process 
the trauma that they themselves are experiencing and also uh, getting them resources so that they can uh, treat uh, Ukrainian civilians uh, who, who've been impacted directly by the war. And Adam, you've had a 30-year career in humanitarian aid, and I can't imagine all of the things that you've witnessed over the 30 years. And, and even over the last couple of years, you, you have made trips to Poland to sort of coordinate, bring in medical equipment to Ukraine. Can you talk more about, you know, what has your personal experience been like in this region? You know, has it, has it changed a lot? I'm, I'm assuming it depends, you know, case by case basis um, with each incident or each event. But what, is, what does that look like personally for you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, uh, you know, um, a humanitarian crisis wherever it occurs in the world has certain uh, characteristics that remain constant, um, whether you're being displaced from Ukraine or from your village in, in another part of the world, you know, you've been removed from your home forcibly. And, and that has very direct practical impact, obviously, on your lives in terms of access to medica- medicines, um, food, water, shelter, all of the basics. Um, but it also has psychological impacts that, again, are, are similar regardless of where you're from. So, you know, every disaster uh, comes with a, a kind of silver lining, I guess. And in, in the case of Ukraine, we've heard a lot about the resiliency of the of the Ukrainian people. And um, although it's, you know, been used a lot, it, it's so true. And um, you feel it. We've been into uh, Poland, as you mentioned. Uh, we have a, a small team based in in uh, western uh, eastern Poland, but we also travel into Ukraine regularly. They were just there last week. I was there myself in September, um, and um, to see the the way the people have come together and uh, to support each other, uh, it, it's it's heartening. Although it's heartbreaking at the same time because. Um, you know that this is a problem that was foisted upon Ukraine. It's not something that they brought on themselves. Uh, and so uh, the unfairness of the situation is, is hard to get beyond. But what we're focusing on is the humanitarian impact of the war on people who who need support, access to medicines, medical supplies, psychological first aid, and other kinds of uh, psychological interventions that will help them uh, become stronger and, and, and survive. You mentioned unfairness because, of course, this is not something that that the Ukrainian people—I don't want to say expected or 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 knew that was going to happen—but they are experiencing it. The humanitarian workers are experiencing it. So, as people are are coping and and living with that uncertainty, you know, what do you want our listeners to to understand about Ukraine and the need there right now? I think the important thing to rem- to understand is that although the time has gone by and the situation has changed, and obviously there are other problems around the world, the situation in Ukraine remains critical. And there's a lot that we can do, not just AmeriCares, but uh, all kinds of organizations can do to provide support, medicines and medical supplies that we provide, the psychological support. Our website, americares.org, is a good place to go to find more information about the types of, of work that we're doing and, and how people can support it. And although, um, uh, you know, support has diminished in terms of financial support to organizations responding there, the needs have not really declined. And so there's an ongoing uh, important uh, amount of work that, that needs to be done. And, and you know, there's a lot that uh, 
people can do in Connecticut uh, to, to provide support to Ukrainian organizations and America's is, is eager to be part of that. Many of the supplies and medicines that we sent out to Ukraine obviously originated in our uh, distribution center in Stamford and, and we're eager to expand that. And, and so as we continue to, to follow the story, I want to ask you to respond to the sanctions we saw put on Russia by the White House over the weekend. You know, is that something that will actually help and aid the war effort in Ukraine? You know, I'm not sure exactly how directly that kind of uh, sanction will impact our work in Ukraine as a humanitarian organization. Our focus is on the victims of suffering, whatever is the cause of those, of that suffering. Um, the sanctions are focused, as I understand it, on political entities inside of Russia, and um, and and hopefully they'll have a, a an impact on their ability to conduct the war. But in the meantime, um, you know, people inside of the country of Ukraine and, and the many refugees who've left and come to the U.S. or gone elsewhere in Europe uh, continue to need support, and and that's really our focus. Well, thank you so much for that, Adam. Appreciate your work and as well as the humanitarian aid workers. You've been listening to Adam Keene, who's the Director of Complex Emergencies at AmeriCares, which is based in Stanford, Connecticut. Adam, thank you so much for joining Where We Live today. Thank you, Catherine. And coming up next, we hear from a Ukrainian-American and some people working with Ukrainian refugees right here in Connecticut. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about the two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And joining us now is a group working with the Ukrainian population here in Connecticut, and some members even have direct ties to this region. First, we have Olena Lenin, who is an adjunct professor of political science at the University of New Haven, and she's also an Eastern Ukraine native. Thank you so much, Olena, for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. And we're also welcoming back Dana Buchin, who's an immigration attorney at Mirtha Kalina, and she's also the honorary consul of Romania to Connecticut. Thank you so much, Dana, for being with us today. Glad to be here. 
And we also have with us Anne Howard, who is the co-author and translator of the book Escape from Mariupol, A Survivor's True Story. She's also an attorney and author. Thanks, Anne, for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Catherine. So we're excited to have all of you with us and also for our listeners. Let us know if you have any questions, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Dana, I want to start the conversation with you. You know, you're working as an immigration attorney. You know, what are you hearing from those who are still in Ukraine? And also, what are you hearing from Ukrainian refugees that have come to the United States? Thank you for that question. Um, I want to preface by saying that uh, as an immigration attorney, I have been founding, I founded this uh, Connecticut for Ukraine refugee matching program, which is a public service initiative of the immigration practice at Mersa Kalina and the Honorary Consul of Romania to Connecticut with the help of volunteers from both the Romanian and Ukrainian communities. And through this program, we brought to Connecticut uh, almost 100 uh, refugees from Ukraine by matching them with local sponsors under the United for Ukraine federal program. Uh, so they come in as humanitarian parolees. I call them refugees, but technically speaking, under the law, they're considered parolees, humanitarian parolees. And so I... I've observed their life here since they arrived. Um, I just want to pause and say that there's 745 more people on our list wanting to come out of Ukraine and join us in Connecticut, but we need more sponsors in order for us to enable their coming here under the U4U program. Um, the ones who have been here, I want to tell you a little bit about the issues that they're confronting here the challenges in the hopes that people who may hear us can help us advocate for removing some of the systemic obstacles to their progression and adjustment in Connecticut. Namely, um, at the top of the list for the newly arrived parolees uh, in Connecticut is their immigration status. Um, they're very grateful for their U4U status, but that's a two-year temporary program that nobody knows if it's going to get renewed or not, especially in light of the federal presidential elections. So we don't know if the next president is going to honor the current parole program that Biden has set in place. So that's a temporary two-year program. Uh, TPS is another temporary status that they are eligible for, and that's 18 months long. Again, nobody knows what will happen to it uh, if it will if Ukraine will be redesignated for TPS during the next presidential administration. Uh, another status available to Ukrainians is asylum, and that is my favorite because it confers the most amount of protection to Ukrainians. However, it is tricky to prove because not everyone who comes from Ukraine qualifies for asylum. I have personally filed a lot of application and seen that people with a past uh, persecution, so folks who have gone through a lot, usually qualify, but not folks who um, manage to escape quite, quite quickly. So asylum is tricky. Therefore, uh, what we are left with is a lot of anxiety that these Ukrainian parolees have about their future. Will they be able to stay in the United States? Are they going to be asked to pack up and go by the next president, whoever that may be? Um, the solution to that would, of course, be 
more permanent protection for them. And that's one of the advocacy items we have to uh, advocate that that Congress pass a Ukrainian Adjustment Act conferring permanent residence status to Ukrainians who have been displaced by the war. Another solution would be any employer who employs Ukrainian refugees could sponsor a green card for them. Other than immigration status, they're confronted by English as a second language challenges. Apparently, uh, those ESL courses fill out very fast. They, they ran out of those offerings. There are just not enough ESL offerings for the amount of demand that we have by Ukrainians and all sorts of other immigrants. Um, the need for online offerings of ESL is being mentioned to me because a lot of these refugees don't have public transportation, don't have transportation to go to those ESL courses. Housing is a huge challenge for Ukrainian refugees. Lack of credit history as a newly arrived person in Connecticut could prompt a landlord to say, no, I don't have a rental history for you. I don't know if you're going to pay or not. Uh, even if rental is possible, it's very expensive. Refugees need to come up with the first month rent and last month deposit. And that's very expensive just to begin renting place in Connecticut. That's why I emphasize the importance of the Connecticut for Ukraine program, because that's where sponsors who bring these refugees over could offer some free housing, at least for the first few months of the refugees' life in Connecticut. And that kind of relieves the housing pro problem that we're having. Public transportation and DMV licenses. At the very beginning of the U4U program in Connecticut, unfortunately, there was very little knowledge at the DMV level about how this program works. So a lot of our refugees ended up getting denied their driving licenses. However, with time, DMV officials have been very good at getting together with us immigration attorneys and figuring out solutions. And the attorney general's office has been helping us with that. So right now, the DMV licenses work much better and um, uh, Ukrainians are able to secure them in Ukrainian uh, thanks to the legislator, legislators in Connecticut who agreed to pass a law last year that added Ukrainian to the list of languages that uh, people could take their DMV uh, driving knowledge test in. Um, other issues that I've, I'm hearing are employment opportunities and licensing. So uh, we have to all recognize that we are facing a workforce deficit in the state of Connecticut. And these refugees could be very helpful uh, addition to our workforce environment. And so the, the challenges they're facing, though, are educational equivalencies because they're, they're brilliant professionals in Ukraine, but they cannot achieve equivalence, full equivalency here. So they have to take uh, more courses here to achieve that equivalency. And licensing is an issue, is a huge issue. Um, so I want to I want to jump in real quick because I want to bring in Anne to talk about uh, Doriana Marek, who who had escaped the war in Ukraine. And I think she's experiencing exactly all of the things that you just described, Dana. So, Anne, I want to bring you in. Um, it's been about a year since we've talked to you about 
about your your book called Escape from Mariupol, which is the true story that described how Ukrainian citizen Odoriana Marek was able to escape. So can you can you talk about uh, her experience? You know, Anne, you translated the book with Odoriana and she is living with you. You know, how is she doing? How is her how has her experience been like living here? Oh, sure. I'd love to share with you. Um, First, I need to say that I so relate to everything Dana just said as a sponsor of a Ukrainian refugee who's on parole. um, The effort that I've put into helping with work visa, SNAP benefits, uh, you know, driver's license, on and on. It's just unending. So these refugees come over and they need a lot of support from not just sponsors, but organizations like uh, like Adams as well. Uh, But I will tell uh, your viewers that your listeners that I just found out that Babbel offers free ESL courses to Ukrainian refugees. So um, if this person has a driving problem and can't get there, that's available on Babbel. But to address Adoriana, she's doing wonderful. She's enrolled part-time in a local community college. Uh, She has an American boyfriend. Um, She's just very happy. She takes ESL classes from uh, an adult education program in Torrington right now that's free. And she previously took an ESL class last semester out of Northwest Community College. So she's really taking advantage of her benefits. But, you know, every Ukrainian refugee you see in America, they may have a smile on their face, but I guarantee you that Ukraine weighs on them like, you know, a dark cloud hanging over them at all times. And I know that even though on one level, Adoriana is very happy in America, she grieves for Ukraine every day. Um, She has many soldier friends who are fighting on the front lines. And just tying this into the bill that we're trying to get passed in Congress right now, you know, I strongly believe that every day that passes without the passage of that bill equates with the loss of Ukrainian lives, Ukrainian soldiers. And at the current time, you know, these men, many of whom, and women, who Adoriana knows, uh, are absolutely exhausted. Um, The rotation on the front lines in Ukraine right now is not typical to what you see in world war or wartime situations, I should say. Um, you know, you're not on the front line experiencing all those horrors and then you get to take a break and the people in the back of the line go forward. No, they're running out of men. Ukraine is running out of men. And they're also running out of bullets to the extent that they're rationing their bullets uh, because Russia has so many more and they need to uh, hold on to the bullets they have. Uh, We also need to give them long range missiles because many of these men have to go dangerously close to the front line because they don't have the missiles that will better protect them when they shoot at a distance. So I just want want, uh, people to know how much the American Ukrainians are struggling right now when they see what's happening to their soldiers, to their men and women. Um, I know Senator J.D. Vance um, recently quoted that whether or not we give money to Ukraine right now through this bill that we're trying to pass through Congress, the war will still stay the same. And I was horrified hearing that comment because as we saw in Advika in recent weeks, the lack of American money or the absence of American money for weapons that's coming through right now directly impacts 
uh, Ukraine's control of cities that it's already captured, and it has a direct impact on the amount of soldiers' lives that are lost. Um, so I, I would encourage Americans to call their Congress people and and um, push them to pack pass this bill uh, for for Ukraine. Um, we heard Zelensky say recently 31,000 soldiers have died in Ukraine. American estimates are higher, 70,000. But the fact remains that 180,000 Russian soldiers have been estimated to die thus far. And 87% of the ground troops in Russia have been lost in this war. So by those stats, uh, Ukraine is doing unbelievably well. And I think this is a vital turning point in the war. Putin is counting on America and NATO countries to burn out and have compassion fatigue and take an isolationist uh, approach. And, uh, you know, history tells us that such an approach will only lead to greater escalation and put America and NATO countries at greater threat as well. Well, and and as as you're as you're talking about this this turning point in in so many different ways, and we've talked about earlier too. Adam described the needs of Ukrainians still living in the war zone and coming out of it, and we also talk specifically about the mental health needs. Can you describe you know? What are the mental health needs of the refugees? Because especially with everything that everyone has described so far, we know they're arriving to the United States already with considerable trauma and now finding themselves having to transition to a completely new life. I mean, I think a regular person going to the DMV, you know, like the, the headache is mm -hmm. real. But yes. for, for refugees, and especially we're talking about just re Ukrainian refugees specifically in this conversation, I cannot imagine the struggles that they have. So can you talk about the mental health needs of the refugees as well. Yes, um, Adoriana, in my book I describe, in our book that we wrote, um, that she hid underground for five weeks in Mariupol under constant bombing, cluster bombs, uh, fighting in the streets. She herself was shot at by Russian soldiers. She witnessed the deaths of many children uh, and, and, and civilians. So yeah, obviously she's gonna have very serious PTSD coming to America. And we have assisted her in trying to find a Russian-speaking therapist. Um, if, if most refugees who come over here have very little money, and at least in the short-term period, they qualify for SNAP and Husky medical benefits. So if a Ukrainian refugee in America wants to um, utilize those Husky benefits, they can get uh, weekly mental health visits from their community health center. Um, additionally, I, th I think just being in positive environments that aren't always focused on the war is, is hugely helpful to these people. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, when, when we met with Adoriana at the airport in New York City uh, in September 22, when she came off the plane, I was just alarmed by the level of stress that I could physically almost feel, it was palpable, of all of the Ukrainian passengers getting off that plane. And you could just see how, how shaken they were. It's as if all of Ukraine has shell shock right now um, because everyone knows people who have died in the bombings or who have died in the trenches. And so there's just this sort of national shell shock 
that's going on. And, and it's all the more important for America to, to offer our resources, to, to show them that moral support that they so desperately need. Um, mental health is also affected by Ukrainian refugees coming to America when they hear anti-Ukrainian sentiments. And I feel this really needs to be discussed right now that when the war began, we had a bipartisan unification. Zelensky got a standing ovation um, from Congress. It's not like that anymore. There's a crack that's growing in which the disinformation of Russia is seeping into our, our politics. And so when a Ukrainian refugee either sees on social media or hears in their community uh, this anti-Ukrainian sentiment that we need to stop sending the money, that, that uh, we need to be isolationist, that can impact mental health as well. You feel alone, you feel unsupported. Um, so mental health isn't, to me, it's not just about the one-on-one -on -one counseling, which is certainly needed, but it's about receiving that benevolence and support in your community. And Elena, I want to bring you here, especially, you know, as a Ukrainian, I want to ask, you know, how, how are you doing? And also, you know, with everything that Dana and Anne has spoken of so far, anything that jumped out to you that you want to respond to? Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, I want to echo Anne's and Dana's comments. Um, I, I think they're very powerful and, and meaningful. Now, I come at it as a Ukrainian-American, um, so I, I worry about uh, my Ukrainian friends and family, but I also worry about the state of uh, affairs in, in the United States and um, the level of support or the level of understanding and misunderstanding that I see of the importance of supporting Ukraine as an American. Um, but as far as uh, you know, my uh, my mood, um, I, I think I definitely share uh, that sense of despair in, in, in a way with um, with my Ukrainian friends. The mood is quite gloomy um, because uh, I, you know, as you may know, one of the key towns uh, strongholds in the Donetsk region has recently fallen to Russian control, the town of Avdivka, which is about 40 miles south of where I'm from, from my hometown. So many of my friends are at the front lines and they report um, ammunition shortages, uh, material, equipment shortages. Uh, I think President Zelensky put a number on it the other day in his press conference by saying that uh, four brigades, you know, several thousand soldiers were ready to participate in the counteroffensive, but did not have the proper kit uh, to do so, and, and he directly linked that with the absence of Western military aid, um, you know, getting there in time. So, uh, you know, th that said, uh, given that the Russians, the Russians are now capitalizing on this momentum, they're definitely exploiting uh, these um, opportunities to advance and they're gaining more ground. Uh, so the Ukrainians are, are definitely struggling. Now, with that, Emma, it still, you know, never ceases to amaze me. Uh, it's just the amount of resilience and um, hope and innovation that Ukrainians have demonstrated, even in the face of some of the most, you know, egregious atrocities. But, but they're only human, you know. Right. Yes, we're all, you know, we admire um, their uh, willpower and, and their resilience and, and courage, but they're they're struggling and they're only human and they're traumatized. And they're they're definitely uh, seeking uh, any uh, any level of support, whether it's psychological, obviously economic as well. But uh, you know, to it, 
kind of to address some of the uh, things that um, Anne uh, described previously in terms of Ukrainians that are coming uh, here to the United States. Um, you know, I think that one of the other avenues of support is um, various scholarships that university, regional universities have provided to Ukrainian citizens. Uh, university of New Haven, where I teach, has welcomed, created a scholarship uh, last year for Ukrainians, and we were able to bring uh, a, an undergraduate student from Odessa, Katerina Federko is, is her name, um, and we've just been um, you know, delighted to welcome her, and she's doing great. Um, but what I noticed, too, is, is that sense of survivor's guilt, and I definitely relate to that in the way that so many of these Ukrainians who have found refuge outside Ukraine are also finding themselves overwhelmed with feelings of guilt um, and unable to you know, live normal lives. And they want to go back and re-engage with helping Ukraine. And I think we need to honor um, those, um, you know, th those desires and those ambitions and, and um, you know, help them as, as much as we can to build normal lives and kind of normalize their existence before they can um, re-engage on, on, on battlefields. Um, and I'll just end on, and perhaps just to give you a sense of, of how dire the situation is, um, Ukrainians still maintain a sense of humor that I think can be quite dark, uh, but it is telling of, of the times that we live in. Uh, what I hear from my friends on, on the battlefield is that because they're struggling for soldiers and, and ammunition and basic supplies so much that the only way to be demobilized and to be rotated out is to be wounded seriously or killed. And I think that uh, that really kind of summarizes um, the, um, uh, um, the, the existential choices that face Ukrainians. Yes, they're courageous um, and they still believe that Russia is not unbeatable and they're right. But they also don't have a choice. And I think that that is something that's missing from uh, in many conversations here in the U.S., especially among policymakers, uh, that Ukrainians are not making the right choices. You know, they're not making the right strategic or tactical choices. But I think that we need to recognize that from the Ukrainian point of view, they simply don't have a choice but continue resisting. And today we're talking to our panel about the Russia-Ukraine war, and they'll be staying with us for the rest of the hour. Coming up, we talk about how Washington is responding to the war. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This weekend marked two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And with us still is Elena Lenin, who is an adjunct professor of political science at the University of New Haven. She's also an Eastern Ukraine native. And we also have Dana Buchin, who is an immigration attorney, and Anne Howard, who is the co-author and translator of the book, Escape from Mariupol, A Survivor's True Story. So, Anne, I want to jump straight to you with this conversation. Earlier this month, the New York Times reported that the days when large aid and arms packages for Ukraine sail through, Congress are likely over. 
over. So I know we talked a little bit about this earlier, but also over the weekend, we did see the White House imposed over 500 sanctions for Russia's war in Ukraine. Can you talk about what we're hearing from Washington? Are the sanctions enough? Uh, no, they're not enough. Clearly, they're not enough. And as Elena brought up Advika, that Advika shows us that just sanctions are not enough. We need desperately to send uh, artillery to, to Ukraine right now. And not just the artillery, but because, as Adam had mentioned, these people have expertise. Ukrainians uh, are very educated uh, people who can take the resources we give them and use them to fight Russia. So it's not an act of charity by any means. But uh, a lot of this money that we are proposing in the, the bill that we want to pass is, is for Ukrainians to uh, build, continue to build factories where they can make their own artillery, uh, factories where they can make land drones. And so that's currently happening, but they need more money to, to fight for themselves and become as independent as possible. Um, with respect to whether or not the age of large bills passing in Congress is over, I would say I, I hope that was an op-ad, <laughs> but if indeed it was just uh, an objective uh, fact that was being um, asserted, I strongly disagree that uh, when you look at, at American history, look at we did, what we did after World War I, after all of the, the carnage and trauma, America took an isolationist stance. And what happened? You know, we got into World War II. So when we say that America will not get involved in these global, um, global threats to not just global stability, but the global economy as well, then we are being extremely naive. Uh, like it or not, America is a superpower. Like it or not, America has responsibilities as a superpower to preserve uh, not just world stability, but democracy. And I think it's incredibly naive and short-sighted uh, to say, as someone like Rand Paul would say, well, we just need to put America first and concentrate on the border. Well, we already tried to pass a bipartisan partisan package that addressed all of the issues the Republicans wanted and gave a very conservative pa package to help at the border with stricter um, asylum laws, uh, increased border patrol. And at Trump's behest, it was rejected. The, the Republicans were about to uh, pass this bill and send the money to Ukraine. Uh, along with help for border protections until Trump made the call to a few uh, GOP politicians and uh, said, this will look bad for my campaign if the border bill passes along with the Ukraine passage of, of money. So um, I think we can't deny the political uh, underpinnings that are going right now uh, with respect to this large package. And I think that we will get into possibly, I hate to say it, but a world war. It's, it's not out of the possibility because Russia has explicitly stated that they're not just interested in Ukraine, that there are um, possible plans for not just the Baltic states and uh, countries like Poland, but even NATO countries could be invaded. So what I find so sad about that article you cited is that 
in my lifetime, in the almost six decades that I've been alive, America has always understood that Russia as a superpower is a threat to our democracy. In recent years, something very insidious is happening where Russia's threat is being minimized. And I think that we do that at our own peril. And if we want to put America first, that means giving money to Ukraine to win this war against Russia. Because let's never forget, if Ukraine loses, they lose their country and their identity. Um, and they lose their democracy. And it's not the time to be um, saying that these, these large packages are a thing of the past. And, and Dana, with what Anne just said, I would like you to really quickly respond. You know, are, what, are, what are you hearing in terms of, of a Ukrainian victory or not? So this past Sunday, there was a pro-Ukraine rally at the Connecticut Capitol. And I saw over 1,000 uh, folks show up in support of Ukraine. And at that point in time, it was Senator Blumenthal who clearly articulated the imperative to passing this bill through Congress. Uh, the senator sits on the Senate's Armed Forces Committee, and he he pretty much uh, outlined that if Ukraine falls, the next countries are NATO countries who will be attacked. And the Article 5 provides that if a NATO ally is the victim of an armed attack, each and every other member of the alliance will consider this act of violence as an armed attack against all members and will take actions it deems necessary to assist that ally that's being attacked. That will drag the United States into an armed conflict in the region if Romania, Poland, uh, the, the Baltic countries are getting attacked. So giving aid to Ukraine right now and when it needs it, it means um, preventing U.S. troops from being deployed in the region. And so I cannot see a clear connection between U.S. national interest and providing this aid package to Ukraine right away. Um, as, as, a member, as a member of NATO Alliance, Romania, of whose honorary consul I am, um, has been assisting Ukraine very diligently, both in terms of providing defense equipment as well as humanitarian assistance, grain assistance through its ports, and is currently training Ukrainian pilots on its soil on F-16 jets with engines manufactured right here in Connecticut by Pratt & Whitney. And so Romania's doing its part to make sure that NATO allies are not going to be next in getting invaded. And that means supporting Ukraine full-heartedly right now when it needs it most. And Olena, I want to bring you in here. We have a couple of minutes left, but I would like to ask you to respond to what Dana and Anne has to say real quickly here. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I absolutely agree that the ripple effects of the U.S. disengaging and um, not supporting Ukraine right now uh, are far reaching. And, and I think that one of the things that uh, was perhaps missing from the conversation is the fact that a lot of that aid that we're talking about right now, the 60 billion aid package that is currently being held up, is actually going to stay in the U.S. because it's going to be an investment into expanding U.S. defense industrial production. So these are, you know, defense manufacturing jobs right here in the U.S. So, I mean, that's just a practical aspect of it in addition to, you know, geopolitical and moral obligations. I think that one of the problems we're seeing is that we really lack long-term thinking because Russia and China 
think in generations, and we here in the U.S. think in election cycles. And I think that we could benefit from, you know, having a more sort of long-term view of where things could, how much worse things can become if uh, Russia were to have its way in Ukraine. And I know as we continue this conversation, Olena, you have an event coming up actually in Weathersfield with Anne. Do you want to talk about that really quickly here? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm actually going to defer to Anne here as the, the leading participant. Okay. I'll be briefly talking at the Weathersfield Public Library with Elena on March 25th at 6.30 p.m. I hope some of your listeners can come. Um, I'll be sharing a visual PowerPoint presentation about the book that I co-authored with a Ukrainian refugee entitled Escape from Mariupol, A Survivor's True Story. And Elena will be giving us an update on uh, Ukraine and the current status of the war. And we will have more of that information on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live for listeners who are interested. I just want to take a moment to thank everyone for joining us today. You've been listening to Anne Howard, who is a co-author and translator of the book Escape from Mariupol, A Survivor's True Story. Thank you, Anne, for being with us today. Thank you, Catherine. You're also listening to Dana Buchin, who's an immigration attorney. Thank you, Dana, for being on Where We Live. Glad to be here. Thank you. And Elena Lennon is an adjunct professor of political science at the University of New Haven. Elena, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story with us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you all. And I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.